0: creating fellow travelers. Welcome to the NUIG Archaeology Society podcast, Have travel, Will Travel. Um, hello everyone and welcome. I am joined here today by Neve Car- um, who is here to talk to us about some of the work that she's been doing, whatever it is well, you're
1: What if I tell you what I'm, what, why don't yeah. I give you, like, just tell you before, and then we can start the questions. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah, that would be perfect. Yeah, perfect. perfect.
0: Um,
1: so what I've been doing since then is I've I worked at the Museum of London Archaeology as an osteologist for five and a half years Um, so I moved over for the big crossrail excavation in London Um, and I've worked on like some HS2 and A14 and various other like really big infrastructure projects Mm -hmm. relating to human remains and this year I made a move into heritage consultancy so I've left the osteology behind and I'm kind of moving into heritage consultancy. Um, so what I was thinking of when, when you asked me to do this I was thinking maybe would it be useful to kind of talk about how how to get
0: into commercial
1: archaeology for students yeah or,
0: no that would be fantastic
1: or kind of like some of the things I've like, got because I know I, no matter where I studied archaeology there wasn't a huge amount of information about how do you get a job <laughs> there,
0: there okay. really isn't and yeah. so I think it would be Wonderful and extremely useful to hear, uh, hear hear some of that, especially from someone who is in the field and has a job <laughs> with archaeology, has been working in it. So. Moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know what, whatever happens in the future, that's a problem for future us.
1: <laughs> and I thought maybe explaining how it works in the UK versus Ireland a little bit. Yeah. Um, because a lot of archaeologists end up moving from Ireland to the UK. Very rarely go the other way. Yeah. And it is it is quite different in terms of how you get work and the things you need to get work here is very different. And no, yeah. again, no one really points you in that direction when you finish. So
0: no, I've just recently finished my undergrad, um, and I think the only class we had where we actually talked about like working in archaeology was one of the most depressing classes I've ever been in because it was basically just there are no jobs <laughs> that was 50 doom, minutes doom, doom. yeah 50 <laughs> minutes of that and I'm like I'm so glad we get this at our you know our final year <laughs> our first year <laughs> so yeah no I think that would be I think that would be fantastic to talk about
1: yeah i just i i was just i was kind of racking my brains because i've I've talked a lot about the the violence and the trauma in the past yeah i have nothing really more to say to and it's been so long since i've even done anything updated on it so i think maybe something practical might be useful
0: yeah no that would be great okay okay yeah okay so we'll do so we'll do that oh all right that'll be that'll be awesome um so go ahead and we'll just start over and all that beginning bit can just be cut (laughs) (laughs) and that's great (laughs) the magic of editing i love it yeah (laughs) um yeah so anyway um so hello and welcome everyone i am here with neve cardi who is here to talk to us about her experience in working in the field of archaeology and kind of how how a hopeful archaeologist might actually go about trying to get a job and Kind of the differences between working in Ireland versus the UK which is uh, where she's now based. Um, So I'll turn it over to you Neve if you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself and we can kind of get get into it then.
1: Hello, Um, I'm delighted to be here and delighted to get this opportunity uh, to have a chat about archaeology and about how to kind of make your way in it after you finish up in university. So my background is actually in history I did an undergraduate in history, um, and then I went and did the postgraduate diploma at NUIG um, in archaeology in 2007, 2006, 2007, and then I decided on osteology as a specialism, so I did postgraduate studies um, in osteology at University College Cork, and I finished my master's in 2008, which was obviously in the height of the recession. (laughs) Perfect and time we all <laughs> and we were told a lot of doom and gloom about the the kind of outlook for working in archaeology but i've been really, really fortunate um to, to be able to kind of keep plugging away at working at it so yeah
0: yeah that's that's wonderful it's it's a little bit of uh, a little ray of hope for the rest of us, there are some people who are working in archaeology. Yeah. So, um, now you're, you're currently based in the UK, but you got started in Ireland, did you work much in Ireland before coming over to the UK?
1: So I was really lucky that when I finished my masters, I got hired by an archaeology company that had a large assemblage of human remains that needed analyzing and they needed assistance to come on board. There was quite a tight time scale and it had to be done by a particular date and they just needed more hands um, mm. on, on board to kind of help out with it. So I worked with them um, for about a year and then that project ended and the work completely dried up. And then I kind of went out in general to work on with them on different projects throughout Ireland. So, I ended up in all sorts of places for very short contracts, as is often very common in commercial archaeology. So I ended up thinking New Ross for twelve weeks, and I was in Kells for ten weeks and kind of did the circuit yeah.
0: um
1: so yeah, so I kind of got a bit of experience in it and that, and I think that's probably one thing that I'd kind of highlighted at the start is that it's a bit of a cliche, but you do have to be quite flexible in terms of archaeology and in terms of archaeology work. Um I kind of decided just not to sit to say yes to everything at that point um and see where it led. And sometimes, you know, I went to work on one job for a couple of weeks and it ended up turning up into a six-month project. And that was very unforeseen when we started out. Yeah. I mean. And the opposite has happened where we've yeah. had gone to work on a project where I thought I was going to be living there for six months and
0: <laughs> done
1: within in 12 weeks and have to move again. So, so it's it kind of, yeah, a bit of both. Um, and then in 2015, I moved to the UK for, with uh, the Museum of London Archaeology, MOLA, uh, for the crossrail excavation at Broadgate Ticket Hall, um, which was a large 17th century cemetery that needed excavating. And again, they needed more osteologists on the team. They expanded the team just for the project. Um, initially, it was for a five-week job. So I didn't emigrate. I was just going for five weeks. I didn't even leave yeah. my accommodation or anything in Ireland. I just was coming <laughs> for five weeks. And I've been here ever since. So, <laughs> so five and a half years later. So <laughs> uh,
0: it, It's funny how that works out. I've often heard that described uh, in, in terms of Galway, where someone will say, yeah, I came down to Galway for a weekend. Uh, that was six years ago, and <laughs> I've never lost <loved laughs> that. <since. laughs> so it, it's funny how that, that kind of turns out. So um, what exactly is commercial archaeology? That's not something we really cover a whole lot in our classes.
1: So commercial archaeology is basically any archaeology that is normally uh, part of the planning process for development, and um, In its kind of more broadest sense. So, you kind of get involved, archaeologists or heritage professionals get involved early on in terms of doing desk based assessments or kind of doing historical research on an area. If a developer has outlined that they want to build something in a particular area, you look at what the potential impacts are. That then becomes part of the planning permission for that development. And depending on what the recommendations are, you might have. Potential for buried archaeology, so you would start off doing um, maybe evaluation trenches again to kind of get a baseline there. If you find more archaeology there or more things that need to be explored, um, also at this point you'd kind of do geophysics and other other sorts of um, non-invasive techniques. Um, then you would go in and do full archaeology, and then you're kind of involved in the project from kind of on site, uh, all the post-excavation. And then most importantly, putting that all together, the entire site archive together um, into a document that goes to the client and it can be kind of, a, they can tick that off, that they have fulfilled that prerequisite of the planning permission and they can continue with their development. And then often that ends up in the archaeology sense when you're in whatever company or unit that you're working in, um, in further dissemination. So you might also have to produce a monograph or journal articles um quite a lot of public outreach as well okay. um, so talking to the general uh, public or talk going to schools and talking to school children about what you found at a particular site so it's kind of the full gauntlet really yeah um, commercial archaeology it's really from before really when it's just an idea in someone's head to develop a piece of land um or do something to a building or alter a building in some way right up to when you're you've got all your information and it's all been analyzed and you've added your little bit to human history. And then you're trying to disseminate that out into either the academic community with journal articles or into the general public. So yeah, so it's kind of, and then commercial archeologists can fall anywhere between that, that gamut really.
0: (laughs) That's, it's quite a production. I don't think people really quite realize how much goes into the whole you know when you have to go in and when you're trying to build something or develop something and you know in in the uk and ireland you can't walk in there anywhere without tripping over something of historical <laughs> or archaeological <laughs> significance um and there's just there's so much to it to make sure that we can build without destroying anything or losing well we'll end up destroying it anyway but without losing what's there that's gosh it's just such a such a process um
1: absolutely and it's it's kind of it's one of those things as well I think that you know you you don't really hear a lot about it when you're I mean I certainly didn't at undergraduate or postgraduate level and it's kind of even knowing the range of roles that are within that you know and that and that actually alongside being a field archaeologist and being a somebody who does specialism or post excavation lots of different things like in terms of community engagement or the other side the really early side heritage consultancy and there's jobs in those sort of fields as well that that aren't traditionally I think associated with um, a kind of career trajectory from archaeology.
0: Yeah I think what a lot of people think of you know when they think of archaeology is literally someone if they're not thinking of Indiana Jones for one thing <laughs> that's usually the first thing that comes to mind uh but then they're probably thinking of someone who's like literally just you know kneeling in the dirt and digging away but there's there's a lot more to it um so there's you know kind of i guess how many archaeologists would be involved in such a project because i assume it's not just unless it's a very very small project it's not just one there's probably multiple archaeologists of very Uh, skill sets involved in it.
1: Absolutely, and it kind of depends on, again, the nature of the project. You can often end up, towards the end of my time um, at MOLA, we were working in a consortium with Headlands, so we were MHI, um, working on HS2. So, because for HS2, you had to form consortiums. You weren't just working with a huge team within your own company. You were working with huge teams of specialists from all over the country in different offices. but yeah they can be vast, they can be absolutely vast. And again, it can be the, the planning or the desk-based assessment team often they do their desk-based assessment and then they hand it over to the project managers and then the project managers see it up to the point of post excavation and they hand it over to, to a post excavation manager. and it kind of it's kind of, there's kind of a life cycle of a project. Yeah so, so the one person won't necessarily be involved from start to finish. they'll kind of get it to a point. Often to an output to a report stage, Mm -hmm. um, and then that gets handed on for the next phase into the next team specialists.
0: Okay, wow, that's interesting. Never really, you know, thought of the whole excavation process being like that. Again, it's kind of something that you just, you know, you have that kind of image in your mind of just like the lone archaeologist digging (laughs) away, (laughs) writing up his little reports. Uh, But it's it's much more of a team effort it sounds like them
1: absolutely know, and you get to you know even I was quite fortunate when I worked in MOLA because it was such a big company they had in-house departments that did the geophysics and did geomatics and we had a project management team and a planning team so you kind of got to work with everyone at different points depending on the projects that you were working on so it kind of meant you kind of got to see little snippets of these other processes that were going on and the projects completely separately but at the same time so yeah yeah, i think it's and the larger the project you work on or the larger the company you go working for um, you tend to kind of get more of that um but again it's becoming more and more common for companies to kind of join up and work together Mm -hmm. particularly on the bigger infrastructure projects Mm. um and that's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant to see how other people do things often the processes and recording systems even can be quite different between uh, company to company and then you have to kind of meet up at the beginning of a project and decide how you're going to record something mm, together yeah. in, on one sort of sheet It's going to be kind of a systematic change across the board so that everyone's doing things the same way
0: yeah I suppose you'd have to do that I can only imagine the amount of paperwork that can be generated from a project like this you know to imagine trying to do you know, multiple different systems all at once. You'd just be swimming in paper. Oh man. And actually
1: we're seeing in the last couple of projects, um, I was involved in, we're seeing a big move towards digital recording for this very reason.
0: Ah,
1: because you're to kind of, well, from, from an environmental point of view, in terms of, there is a lot of paper generated from, um, any site, site archive. Um, Mm -hmm even on a small site it's amazing the amount of paper that gets generated
0: yeah Um, and also
1: kind of from trying to use digital technology to kind of innovate a little bit how we do things Mm
0: -hmm. so there's been
1: a lot of trialing of this particularly in the uk um, and to see can we make it work and it and the um kind of first results back are looking very positive again it's it's also when you're able to do digital capture and recording and a Often on an iPad or a tablet. Yeah. So you kind of fill out your, your recording sheet, but on that, um it often then can plug straight away into a database. So uh,
0: the yeah. person back
1: in the office isn't waiting on a folder to come back from site. Context yeah. <laughs> 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 it, <have> sheet. <laughs> yeah. it's
0: it it'd be much faster and easier to share if it's a digital copy that you can just kind of, you mm. know, email real quick rather than have to either drive it up to the office or stick it into snail mail
1: absolutely absolutely and it's also quite important for the long term if we think about a project the life cycle a project going on way beyond the excavation when you deposit an archive and um, the whole point of a lot of what we do is that not only are we fulfilling planning um, constraints but that we're also generating in data for learning more about humanity
0: yeah.
1: and we only we always are aware of the limitations that we have within commercial archaeology either time constraints or budget constraints and we want that data to be available to researchers so that they can access it and often when things are on paper records they're quite inaccessible because it means that because they're so delicate and there's only one version of them often in the past people had to actually physically visit an archive to go look at the archive or it would get scanned but if you know, if a context sheet had been covered in dirt or water or whatever on a given day, or someone's handwriting wasn't that legible, yeah. um, it can be a little bit, you know, problematic if you're trying to, if you're somewhere anywhere else in the world actually, and you're trying to look at um, records. So the digital records hopefully will make that more accessible, that you could be a researcher basically based anywhere in the world and be able to access the site archive and make sense of it.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, that is going to be, if that can really get traction, that's going to be a massive benefit in the future. I think we've already seen kind of some of that, um, the benefit of being able to research rem- remotely happening now because of, you know, mm-hmm. COVID has forced um, pretty much everybody to work from, to have to work for, and do research from home and to be able to access resources Remotely is extremely valuable, so I could definitely see the benefits for that going forward. And plus, my own handwriting is just absolute chicken scratch. <laughs> I, I pity the person who would have to read my handwriting. <laughs>
1: Oh, everyone's handwriting is bad when you're standing in a field in the rain and the wind, oh, gosh. to be honest.
0: Oh, uh, man, my handwriting would be absolutely illegible at that point, because it's chicken scratch in the best of conditions. Oh, gosh. Well, there you go. You mightn't
1: have to worry about it. It yeah. might be you never know, like in a year or two, it might be all tablets and it would be all ah, types, wonderful. So.
0: <laughs> wonderful. It'd be good for good for anyone who has to read my handwriting and that includes myself because there are plenty of times where I'll write something down and then I come back to it later and I'm like, I don't know what any of this is. <laughs> don't know any what I was thinking. Machine. <laughs> exactly. Oh gosh. So um, just given how many different, I guess, uh, roles there are to play for archaeologists, um how i guess specialized does an archaeologist need to be or like how skilled do they need to be like um if someone coming out with just an undergrad in archaeology um what prospects would they have compared to a master's graduate
1: so it kind of depends what you want to do and again i think this is you know this is spoken with you know Twelve or thirteen years hindsight, so I definitely <laughs> wasn't, didn't feel like this, you know, or didn't know any of this twelve or thirteen years ago. But if you, it depends what you want to do with your career um, and what you want to do. So there's there's different in terms of progression within the discipline. Mm-hmm.
0: So a lot of people,
1: just no matter what sort of masters they have or what sort of speciality they've gone into, they often end up on site as a field archaeologist. Um and field archaeology progression is mainly based through experience and experience of many different sites and then you kind of work your way up to supervisor level and then up to kind of senior archaeologist or project officer level and then one, one way forward is to kind of go into the more project management side of things um, and in a lot of uh, companies in both Ireland and the UK a lot of the project managers that's how they started themselves they began as field archaeologists and worked their way up um, if you have a particular interest or speciality that you're really interested in pursuing um, and you go do a master's in it and want to pursue it, obviously there is less work available, less jobs advertised. But if you can get into it and get a bit of experience, it obviously makes you more employable um, mm-hmm. in, a, in the constant redundancy situations, unfortunately, <laughs> that you do get in, in field archaeology. It can be a famine or a feast, yeah. So if you have something else, another string to your bow, that you can say, well, I can do geomatics or aerial photography or standing buildings on top of being a field archaeologist, the chances are you might survive a call yeah. <laughs> if you like. Um, but it kind of depends on what you're interested in. Um, and often things like master's and other postgraduate qualifications do count positively um towards you in terms of progression even if you want to stay in field archaeology so it's never a negative thing i know a lot of people who've ended up as project managers or project officers or senior archaeologists and they have specialities in all sorts of different fields because they did a master's that they were interested in
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: and they might necessarily haven't worked at it a huge amount or even at all but it's always stood to them because they have that specialist knowledge because you'll always be able to use it in some particular way. Yeah. Um. Another thing to look at as well is that there is some specialities, uh, certainly in the UK and I think in Ireland as well, that um a lot of the specialists um there isn't that many of them and mm-hmm. they haven't there hasn't been kind of replacements as time has gone on, particularly with the recession there kind of is a big gap there in people coming up the ranks. So there are certain fields and different parts of specialities that then in a couple of years time there will be jobs available in so sometimes it can be about doing a little bit of research and seeing um, kind of being pragmatic about it but I would suggest following what you want to do Yeah. <laughs> because if you study anything in detail you have to like it and there's no point picking something just because oh I'll get a job in that eventually if you don't like it you, there's oh,
0: gosh, yeah. so now, that's <laughs> so balancing
1: the pragmatism and following your heart kind of thing
0: yeah, well, that's, that's kind of been my, my personal philosophy for, for studying things because, you know, it's, especially when you get to, like, the master's level or any higher and you're having to study something, like you said, in detail, if you don't like it, <laughs> it's going to be miserable <laughs> trying okay. to study something.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, so, but that's interesting. Now, other, um certain qualifications that someone might need, and this might kind of Uh, Because I do want to talk about later kind of focus specifically on like the differences between working in England and Ireland. Um, This is kind of just a little bit of a general overlook. Um, But what are some qualifications that someone might need if they want to go into like field archaeology um, that might not be offered by an archaeology course.
1: So I think it again is kind of it's going to be geographically specific, and we can look at the uh-huh. differences later on. But definitely, um, things like safety qualifications, which do change quite regularly, and uh-huh. as health and safety legislation changes, so it's quite good to kind of keep abreast of those things. Uh-huh. Um, I know that the certainly in the UK, the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists has quite a lot of information, as does Badger, the British Archaeological Jobs Resource website. Um, And they have kind of like guides available where they have the most up-to-date information on what you might need on top of it. Um, A driver's license is always quite useful in archaeology, mainly because of the nature of the sites often being in the middle of nowhere. But it's not a complete bar if you don't have one. I know plenty of archaeologists, particularly in London, where they haven't had to learn how to drive because all the sites are on public transport yeah so it's not it's not a complete no-go it's just if you want to be again just about employability and Mm -hmm. being able to move quite seamlessly from job to job to job it is quite useful to be able to drive yourself places so that's kind of something to kind of keep in mind Um, and that's kind of that's kind of it really normally any other specific training that's needed is often designated by um for a particular project by a client so that can be maybe asbestos awareness training or a confined spaces training. And that's often organized in-house okay. by your employer. So that, yeah, so that they kind of organize that because it's project specific. So I wouldn't go out and sign up and pay a lot of money for courses Um, just on, like on the off chance. I think if you just have your, your health and safety qualification which or whatever uh, mm-hmm. region you want to work in, um i'm that's generally the entry level yeah. to get a job
0: okay okay that's interesting so that is there is one thing that i at least i personally have been curious about um cuz you know like if you go into the the food industry or something there's usually certain qualifications they kind of look mm-hmm. for there and you know if you go for a driving job you might need certain things so i always kind of wondered like okay know is there anything more than just the degree that you might need if you wanted to go into you know into archaeology um another
1: useful thing is to look at membership at the professional bodies Mm -hmm. so in ireland you have the institute of archaeologists of ireland the ii and then in the uk it's the first the Chartered institute for archaeologists and you can join at a student level i think for not a huge amount of money and that it, certainly in the UK, membership of CIFA is becoming more and more important because mm-hmm. it has got tied in now to the health and safety qualifications. Okay. So, often entry level at those organisations is not that difficult. It's just a matter of joining up. And then they're really useful in terms of once you're a member, you have a log on and your own little personal profile. Mm-hmm. And it's really good for keeping track of CPD and other training you do any sort of lectures you go to and it opens you up to all the training that they organize as well
0: okay that's that's something that i actually didn't know i mean i knew about those organizations Mm -hmm. um and i've been telling myself i should join a couple of them for about four years now (laughs) it just (laughs) hasn't happened yet
1: oh it took me years Uh, yeah
0: (laughs) yeah but it's you know it's interesting those particular kinds of benefits um Mm -hmm. To be a member, um, I think would definitely kind of help persuade some people into into joining, um, if they might balk at the the price, even like a student price, because um, that's it's, that kind of thing sounds uh, rather valuable to be able to keep abreast of some of that information and kind of keep track of the lectures you go to.
1: And I think at the moment, obviously, like like we're doing right now, I think a lot of their. Um, outreach and courses and training and cpd has gone online so okay. it's no you're no longer limited geographically like you might have been previously if you saw yeah. a really interesting course that sifa were doing on project management but it was happened to be in birmingham obviously that would have been you know quite <laughs> geographically because you would have to you know get yourself up there unless your employer was willing to pay but obviously yeah. if you're just doing it as kind of starting out. So that's something to kind of keep in mind that actually joining now might be quite a good time to join because a lot of this training will have gone up online.
0: Sorry, I'm like writing notes down for <laughs> myself <laughs> <laughs> as, you're, as you're like, ooh, this yeah, is really fine. good. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be able to read my writing later. That remains to be seen, yeah. no uh that's that's fantastic. Um so I guess another big thing that uh, people tend to be concerned about, especially parents, when their child comes home and says, I'm studying archaeology, and the parent goes, oh, Lord, what are we getting ourselves into? <laughs> um, what is the, um, I guess, the salary expectations someone might have, you know, or might <laughs> hope for going to it? I understand it'll probably change depending on where you go into, but, like, you know what's that like?
1: <laughs> so salaries in archaeology have normally been very closely linked to kind of boom or bust situations. Yeah. So in the boom years, the Celtic Tiger years in Ireland, you know, there's all these mythical tales of people earning, you know, quite <laughs> very substantial salaries, and they did because there was more money available for development. It all goes back to if you think about that life cycle of a project again. Mm-hmm. Often the salary or the amount of money available for salary is determined by the project budget, the whole project budget for you know building a shopping centre or a road. So obviously, when times get tough, that overall project budget goes down. But there has been massive um, movements in both the UK and Ireland in by unions. Um, and okay. so unite unite is the union that represents the archaeologists in Ireland, mm-hmm. and Prospect is the main union that represents uh, archaeologists in the UK, and they have had large success at kind of looking at collective bargaining for wages and looking at wages in general in the construction sector and pointing out that archaeologists are being paid a lot less than their colleagues that they stand on site with every day yeah so yeah so i think i think entry level is still quite low um Mm -hmm. but it kind of depends on well it depends on what what trajectory you want to take, and it kind of depends on, um, yeah, it kind of depends on that. It can depend on the project. So often, um, and particularly in more recent years in the UK, a lot of archaeologists have, you know, topped up their base salary by quite a lot of overtime because mm-hmm. we're finding that more and more as we work on these huge infrastructure projects that the clients' working hours are completely different to the eight to four that we're used to on site. Yeah. So they expect people to be on site between 8 and 6 or whatever or work Saturdays and obviously that's not a solution really to um to low pay i mean base pay should increase and you know yeah the unions would always argue that and that people's skills and experience should be rewarded it can be something very useful when you're starting out um that you can kind of top up your salary a little bit with overtime that yeah. is available to everyone else on site and that's quite common in construction as well that Base salaries can be, you know, at a kind of moderate level, but then with over time, you can build up uh, your salaries uh, with that. Um, and then obviously it depends on like what trajectory you take. Um, mm-hmm. If you go into the salaries, obviously get higher as you go more senior. Yeah. Um, and it can be linked to where you work. Um, salaries in general, I think, are higher in Ireland in archaeology than they are in the UK. Um, it can be it depends on the type of work you do. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a little bit of a little bit of a kind of vague area. But I think expectations at the start probably would be quite low. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially if you go in on a trainee scheme. Yeah. But I would never be afraid of asking about progression. That's something I've learned through many years of archaeology. Of Always ask about what's the progression, what's the pay structure, and do you get a yearly pay increase that just everyone gets, kind of from a collective point of view? Is there individual Mm -hmm. pay increases? Because all companies work on different systems. And I've worked in companies that do all sorts of things. So some companies do, you know, yearly appraisal, and your pay is linked to your performance, which is quite common in other industries. And other companies just give a percentage increase to everyone across the board based on how well they're doing in a given year. So that can be also quite beneficial if the company you're working for has worked on some really big projects and has brought in uh, quite a bit of money. Um, so yeah, but I, I'd never be afraid of asking. I'd never be afraid of asking at an interview stage about how it's going to work because there's nothing worse than getting a job and then sitting there wondering and it almost becomes more difficult then to ask. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, and I think if they are a if they're reputable company or unit they should be well able to answer that in, a, in an interview stage and they should have that information to hand and be happy to kind of guide you through it you know that you start at this level but you know once you do x y and z and complete these things in the first year you will move to this level or you'll get a bonus or you'll get a pay increase you know once a year or twice a year and they yeah. all they all have completely different systems as we've learned they've all completely different systems so yeah i think okay i think never be afraid to ask for it okay and ask uh, the information about it
0: yeah that's that's very good information to know because i you know i can see that helping someone kind of uh decide if they if they should take a job or not if they mm-hmm. you know they ask that kind of yeah. if they ask that question and the answers are not what you're looking for or maybe it doesn't sound like there's a a good opportunity for progression or Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't it doesn't sound like you're actually going to be able to do much with it um you're probably going to be better off with turning down the job offer should you get it and find something that's going to be a little bit more sustainable
1: yeah or have it in your mind that's the situation and that you'll do that job maybe it's just a project specific job you'll do it for the six months or whatever but that it's not going to be your long-term career with this company. You're just going to do it for the experience uh, to get that on your CV, to get some work under your belt and, okay. and then move on afterwards. But again, I think it's important. It's really important to know it from the outset. And, and again, if they're a reputable company, they should have no problem with yeah. providing that information. They'd be happy to discuss it. So.
0: Okay. Well, that's very good to know. It's also good to know that there, there is some money to be made. It's not going to be a whole lot, but I don't think no. uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think there's many. I don't think any people, anyone who's getting into archaeology, is not getting into it for the money. Or if they are, they're very quickly going to learn <laughs> that's the bat. the wrong attitude to have.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's. You know, there is a lot a lot of rewards for a career in archaeology. Um, but of, often pay is not at the top of those lists of rewards. But there I think I think I think once you get to a certain level, again, depending on what you're doing exactly, but once you get to a certain level within uh, different companies, the pay can be quite comfortable. You know, when you compare it to other industries yeah. and compare it to similar levels. Um, I don't think anyone's ever gonna make the megabox in archaeology, or maybe very, very, very few people do. <laughs> but yeah, I think but I think it's a, I think that's a really important question to ask because I think a lot of people I've worked with a lot of archaeologists on site, particularly on the big infrastructure projects, and it's their first job. And they come in and they really don't know. Like no one's ever spoke to them about wages, and and you know they start on. Well, here it's quite common to start on about twenty one thousand, which, depending where you're based geographically, can either be a comfortable life, or if you're based in London, can be actually quite tough to survive on yeah. that to pay rent and pay for transport in London, and. Yeah, I think I think it's a really important thing to know at the outset. And again, you can kind of make your decisions like, accordingly. Some people come and they just work on that salary and they know they're not going to stay and they'll work for that project and then they move on or they go to another company that's outside of London so they can earn the same amount, but their money will go much further. Yeah. Um or they or they'll move somewhere else. And yeah, so it's kind of I think it's important, it's definitely an important consideration in archaeology.
0: Yeah, no, and I think I think one that can't be understated, the importance of asking those kind of questions. Because, um, I don't know, th- at least like for me personally, I, I, that seems to be the most awkward question to try to ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate asking no, those and questions. I
1: think, and I think we need to get rid of the taboo about that. I think it has yeah. to be something um, that is spoken about. Because you should never be embarrassed, I think, to ask for the money that you're worth. Yeah. Um archaeologists bring such value to a project for lots of different reasons and they're intrinsic like I said to like the planning process nothing is going to happen unless the work is done to to quite a high standard that is laid out by various different bodies that check all these things and yeah I think they should and and often they're coming in with you know masters and lots of experience and like they should be you should be rewarded for the work you do I think and there shouldn't be an embarrassment about asking for that yeah
0: no definitely for sure I'd I'd agree with that um so I guess now um so we've kind of talked a little bit about kind of just field archaeology commercial archaeology in general um so now what are some of the differences that you have found between working in Ireland and working in the UK that's probably a very broad question. But, yeah. um, in the,
1: so the main difference I noticed is that just, well, it really depends on the time um, and what's going on in general. But often in Ireland, there was bigger gaps between contracts because there just wasn't as many large infrastructure projects happening. Obviously, I kind of got into it at the end of, well, very much in the middle of the recession. So... Yeah. Um, that might have been different, you know, if you were digging maybe in 2002, 2003, but I noticed there was longer gaps. I have a lot of colleagues who still work in Ireland and they notice that there is, there can be gaps between the projects where, as in the UK, just because it's a bigger country and there's more work and there's more construction work happening, that you can often kind of fill in the gaps between um, different, um, between different contracts. Um in terms of the archaeology obviously there is differences in terms of what you're going to find We have Romans here which i had to learn all about when i came to the uk <laughs> <Of course>. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, which is quite important um so yeah so i think i think again if someone is thinking about coming to the uk to work or is even comparing the two in their head you know they're looking at jobs in ireland and jobs in the u.p you kind of have to think about those sorts of considerations that the archaeology yeah. might be a little bit different to what you've learned in university, but that's not a bar to it at all. I mean, on any archaeology site that I've ever worked on, you've people from all sorts of different backgrounds and different countries and different levels of experience and knowledge. And, you know, once you have the basics, you can you can get on top of whatever you're excavating. Um Another big difference kind of from a practical point of view can often be um, accommodation is quite often um, supplied on projects in the UK. Okay. Um, And again, this is something, a very important question to ask. I think if you've been offered a job or if you've rung up for information about a job is to ask about accommodation, uh, because obviously that can make a massive difference in terms of relocating. If you're thinking about moving from Ireland to the UK or UK to Ireland, Um, and also in terms of cost. You know, you save a lot of money if your accommodation is being provided um, and checking what sort of accommodation is it. I mean, a lot of companies now have quite high standards in that you never share a room. It's, you know, you kind of it's self-catering, which people prefer. No one really wants to be in a hotel for months and months and months.
0: Yeah. Um, so they're,
1: they're often operating to quite high standards um and then you will get a subsistence payment um which can be kind of somewhere in the region of about five to fifteen pounds a day to kind of pay for your groceries and other sundries that you're paying because you're kind of technically if your accommodation has been paid they're deeming that you're away from home yeah um but i've seen projects even recently advertised that are providing accommodation for six months which is amazing you know in terms of um just the logistics of if you're moving somewhere new for a job, if your accommodation is already provided and it's okay and you can happily live there, it takes a big weight off your shoulders. Um,
0: Yeah. As someone who's had to do the whole house hunt thing from abroad far more times than I care to count, uh, that would be a very nice benefit. Absolutely.
1: And I think you definitely can see that when you have a project where um, I've been I've experienced this in the past, where I've I've been involved in project project planning, and you know where we've offered accommodation. Um, you you tend to get a kind of a wider range of people applying because you're mm-hmm. getting even people that are quite experienced, but like, well, if the accommodation is provided. I can go do that for like six months or two months or whatever, because the accommodation is what puts a lot of people off. They don't want to pay deposits. Yeah particularly a city like London, but like anywhere, you don't want to pay a deposit somewhere. I mean, it can be very difficult to get a short-term lease as well.
0: Mm-hmm. You don't
1: want to end up living in a random hostel, you know. So yeah. I think accommodations, so I think that's something that is one of the one of the bigger differences, is kind of the logistics around the excavations. But I know there are some in Ireland who do provide accommodations, just more of the norm here. Yeah, Um. Yeah. aside from that, I think definitely field archaeology, you tend to kind of, it's quite a small world actually. Uh-huh. And you tend to kind of bump into the same people both in the UK and Ireland. And people often kind of rotate between the two countries um, quite a bit based on projects, kind of following particular projects, um, following work, following maybe they want a bit of stability this year. So they've seen a project that's advertised that has a year contract, they know they'll be in one place for a year. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, kind of, there's a lot of similarities between the two. Um, and then recording systems are. Slightly different between the two, but again, that can depend on that can be company specific. And again, like I said, there is this massive move towards digital, so that's all changing now, anyway. Yeah. So, and, and actually, some of those recording system differences are probably going to get eroded uh, away a little bit with, I think, the move towards digital.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it'd be e- it it'll be easier to have a single recording system if it's mm. all digital because you can all just kind mm. of share the same thing.
1: Absolutely. But I think, I think, you know, I've, I've definitely been the person turning up on site, um, both in the UK and Ireland, you know, not knowing anything, not knowing anything about the site or anything. <laughs> I think, you know, I think important, just ask questions, ask questions, very important. There's always someone who's willing to help. If, they're, if it's a larger excavation and the company is aware they're taking on a lot of new staff or people that don't have a lot of field experience they'll often have appointed someone as kind of a trainer um, sometimes that can be quite a formal role and sometimes kind of it can be informal but that's really useful to have someone yeah. that's not just bugging everyone with questions that there's one specific person that's <laughs> agreed to be bugged with questions yeah that's always <laughs> handy um but yeah so i think but i think yeah i think the and then obviously geographical changes and differences exist as well i mean archaeology in london is quite complicated because you're dealing with the really deep stratigraphy which i still have to get my head around (laughs) where you have just layers and layers and layers of occupation all intercutting each other um so that's why a lot of people when they come to london certainly they end up staying because that's a speciality in itself learning how to understand that and read the site um and likewise people go into rural archaeology and that's a speciality and a knowledge set in itself trying to understand you know features that can look quite um small like little post holes little stake holes and mm. we actually understand that these were part of a bigger structure so it's but yeah i think i think there isn't there isn't as many kind of differences in the day to day job i think just differences in what can be offered around the job um but for the most part archaeologists are a good bunch. So. Yeah,
0: that's always that's good. it's good to hear. Um, because that kind of just opens up some more opportunities for mm-hmm. people. You know, if you know that you could you could technically go to, you know, the UK and find find a job with the same sort of expectations that you would find in mm-hmm. Ireland. It's not like you're entering a completely different world. Mostly.
1: No, absolutely. Um, we we'll, we'll see what happens after Brexit. <laughs> I was,
0: that was actually going to be my next question. I was, there, I was thinking, do I say the B word? Do I need to bring, uh, but I got to bring it up. <laughs> because that is, that is going to be something that, um, will and probably is, uh, causing a lot of concern is, you know, um, you know, before, before Brexit, um, because within the European Union, um, I, as you can tell by my accent, I am not Irish or of the European Union. So my understanding is hazy at best. But from what I've understood is that a citizen of the EU has generally free movement within and can mm-hmm. kind of work in just about every country of the European Union without mm-hmm. too much of a hassle. Um, but post Brexit, that may change some things. Um, Yes. And it might be a bit early bit early to tell, but um what kind of difficulties might that cause someone in well for an EU citizen I'm kind of just I'm in a whole different but <laughs> well, they are altogether. they are changing
1: the rules for everyone. So the rules okay. for non-EU and EU are going to all change because they'll all be lumped in together post Brexit. Okay. Um there are issues with archaeology in terms of the low pay, that can be a problem. Um because sometimes there's paid thresholds. I mean, none of this has been agreed on yet. But this is the the most recent information that I'm aware of, is that there, for, depending on the visa you want, there can be a pay threshold for that. Yeah. Um, one thing that they are lobbying for in the UK, I think the Heritage Alliance and CIFA and other professional bodies in the UK are lobbying for, is to try and get archaeology put on a, a list of um professions that are necessary for the economy so there is a list I think it's a tier one visa and it's associated with listening off it's at the moment kind of nurses and doctors and other people but but there are parts of like engineers and other parts of construction are on that list yeah
0: okay yeah because of I've seen that list. Sorry, I've seen that list because, um, again, American citizen here, and so I'm, like, (laughs) desperately finding a way to, like, stay here. And, you know, I'd look at the, the list of, I guess, you know, necessary or very much needed Mm -hmm. occupations. And I think I've looked at that both for Ireland and for the UK and archaeologists are not on there yet. (laughs) It's very frustrating.
1: But (laughs) there there is some very, very powerful lobbying going on behind the scenes because the big concern in the UK certainly is HS2. It's such a massive, massive project that is going to have beyond comprehension uh, amounts of archaeology and that all has to be done in a time scale it's a very strict time scale that has to be yeah. done for so it would be massively problematic if they cannot fulfill those roles on site and and if that has even spurred on um there's a lot they've just launched an apprenticeship program into archaeology and um, so some of the different companies have started doing that this september to try and get people in from backgrounds that didn't do undergraduate degrees that kind of coming in from various different backgrounds to try and get them trained up in advance of HS2 so there definitely is a need um yeah. one thing I know from my European colleagues here is that the type of contract you're on uh, heading into Brexit does make a difference so having a permanent contract is obviously more beneficial um, for next year and, and actually companies they're here they are not adverse to handing out permanent contracts because you don't actually have a huge amount extra rights on a permanent contract it's just they'll have to give you a month's notice yeah and then you might have to go through a redundancy system Mm -hmm. if they need to let you go rather than a temporary rolling contract which isn't really beneficial at all if you're on the receiving side of it
0: yeah
1: um (laughs) so yeah i think maybe the nature the nature of the the nature of the contract you're on might be something to kind of keep in mind, um, and and again, ask at any sort of interview stage, or if you're calling up about a job. And that's something that I would recommend. Um, is if you see a job advertised, um, an archaeology job, call call up the company and ask them these questions even before you apply, because there's no point applying if they if they're not uh, set up to kind of deal with this post-Brexit uh, yeah. um, and ask them what are they going to do for staff post-Brexit and again a lot of companies have very robust plans in place uh, because they've been preparing for them some of them won't have any plans in place and you're better off um, if you're concerned about it is working with an employer that is, is set up basically yeah. to go um, yeah so that's kind of my advice about it but yeah it will bring changes I mean there's already the kind of starts of the planning laws changing here because a lot of them are linked to European directives. Um, so you could see changes to the planning system here. There is a white paper that's just been published where they're trying to streamline the planning system. Um, and we haven't really seen the full impact that's going to have on heritage and archaeology yet. They are still a central part of the planning system at the moment, but. How that white paper gets developed into legislation is going to be really interesting and everyone's watching it very closely here so that it doesn't get any of the rights or protections that archaeology and heritage have at the moment don't get eroded away with a big desire to just build, build, build and (laughs) move development forward because it would be an awful pity if that happened. That that Um, it would. Yeah, especially, you know, with um, kind of... Yeah, I think especially at the moment, I think it would be a huge pity if that happens. So.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's so good. This has definitely been much less doom and gloom than the one class I took. <laughs> <laughs> We're, I, we oh, weren't even. Worry. It wasn't even <laughs> a class on like archaeology um, careers. It was just a single day where we talked about what you could do in archaeology, and oh, it was the most depressing class. <laughs> had ever taken <laughs> I think that's
1: the and it's almost like when you finish and I definitely felt like that it's almost that it's like you feel it's like a secret society that you haven't been invited into you know like how are these people working what what magical password did they have <laughs> and in most cases it's actually not like that at all if i have been the other side of it I've actually been fortunate enough to be on the hiring side of it for projects and it's <laughs> it's not there's no real secret formula or anything like that it's I think a lot of the skills required for archaeology are, they're not even so much the academic side of things, even though the academic thing is very important and having a good yeah. academic understanding. But it's a lot of it is to do with your kind of personality and how you approach work. And, you know, will you be able to work in all weather? And will you be able to be outside all day? Because a lot of people come and join archaeology and realise they don't want to be outside all day and they really don't like it and they'd rather be inside and that's great I think if you find that out early on you're you're sorted it's better to find than, that early on <laughs> rather discover 10 years later what have I done with my life <laughs> um so yeah a lot of it can be attitudes. and I think that's another another kind of important thing to say that you know if people are applying for jobs it's kind of letting that shine through on your application as well as your oh, I did a degree in this and I did these classes it's to kind of show that you're you have an, an awareness and understanding of what the work will be like and mm-hmm. that you're up for it you're willing yeah. to do that
0: you know what you're getting and in for
1: exactly exactly yeah. um and that you're willing to kind of be part of the team and muck in and yeah I think I think a lot of it is to do with because you spend so much time on a site with people in terrible weather that <laughs> <laughs> Who you're out in a field in the middle of the, in snow and rain does make a difference, you know. Yep. Like, like who, who you're getting to chat to and who, and you know, you the best friendships are made in those situations when you're in a cabin yeah and it's freezing <laughs> and you're all desperately waiting for the kettle to boil so you can have yeah. a cup of tea. You know,
0: <laughs> you're all just suffering together,
1: <laughs> and you've just been you know shoveling frozen soil and yeah, you're oh kind of honor, honor, honor among kind of. You know,
0: So I think we had just finished up with uh, kind of talking about the effect that Brexit would have on Mm -hmm. people trying to kind of go from Ireland to the UK and vice versa. And at least from what you were telling me, it kind of sounds like something that just um, at least for the moment, we kind of just need to keep our eye on to see what comes out of this
1: absolutely and again a lot of the bigger organisations involved in archaeology like cifa um and prospect archaeology union and unite the union and um the iai and lots of other organisations are keeping abreast of it as well so it's worthwhile either you know checking on their website seeing what the most recent guidance is um again everything is probably going to change in january again so yeah. There's no point to probably you know learning how things work at the minute, and it's all gonna change anyway but but i think I think one thing's for certain there is quite a bit of archaeology work coming down the track in the u k mm-hmm. and they will require archaeologists to dig it so which is a a fact that and that archaeology has already gone through the planning system so any changes to the planning system isn't going to impact that that's already through that system so there will be lots of opportunities um and again it's kind of just about keeping your eye on the ball um signing up to any um mailing lists i know cifa if you join cifa they have a jobs bulletin they send out once a week Uh which is quite useful because some companies that's the only um format they use for job advertisements so it can be really good to kind of keep an eye on that and then badger like i said uh the british archaeological jobs resource i think it's badger.org um they have the most comprehensive list of jobs in the uk um and that's where a lot of the guides as well to work in the uk are um and yeah just keeping an eye out i mean it's not it's not for everyone and emigrating isn't for everyone and but if you're able to maybe get a job on a project where they do provide accommodation you can kind of treat it as a working holiday and come and see if you like it you know and go and work somewhere and see what you think about it and see what you think about working here and it's it always looks good I think on anyone's uh resume is you know looking at you know it's a good thing to say in interviews that you're willing to travel for work
0: yeah oh definitely (laughs) if you can
1: demonstrate that
0: yeah Yeah. yeah well, that's all you know, like I said before, it's a much more optimistic look than my class just this past year, <laughs> which yeah, all my all my classmates in that class will will agree with me. It gave us a um it did not give us much hope for our futures in archaeology, so hearing hearing this kind of perspective um is definitely very valuable and uh a little bit more heartening to hear that there are opportunities there is work
1: and I'm I'm glad I'm glad because I think I think it can be really easy and again I've definitely fallen into the trap myself in the past because you know I did you know come out looking for work at one point in the middle of a recession and I think you know it can be very easy to kind of get disheartened by it and disheartened by the kind of doom and gloom stories but I think you know it's like any other industry, particularly at the moment. You know, you just have to kind of keep your eye eye on the ball, ear to the ground, mm-hmm. and and there there is work out there. There is work out there, and it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be easy, and there's going to be days. in archaeology, if anyone becomes an archaeologist, where you won't like it. Yeah, <laughs> because you'll be wet and you'll be cold, and you're like, what am I doing with my life? But it is massively rewarding, and I think what you know, what myself and other colleagues who've been in it a while now you know continually try and remind ourselves when we're complaining is that there's very few people that get to work at the job they love yeah like a lot of people go to university and do something practical or something they think they should do and they go work in an office and they do a nine-to-five and they're not passionate about it whereas if you work in archaeology you are surrounded by people that are passionate about it and they it's not just their job it's their interest yeah and you know you get to work with world experts on things and you get to discover new information about the past and about past civilizations and you know for every you know wet and cold day there is plenty and plenty of really good days in archaeology and I would definitely I think everyone should it's not for everyone but I think everyone should give it a shot and see how they feel they fit in with it um yeah and yeah I think it can be a very rewarding career but again always ask the questions ask the questions about money and ask the questions about progression and don't be afraid to ask those questions every every other industry in the world people ask those questions we shouldn't be embarrassed as archaeologists to be asking what am I going to get paid and am I going to progress
0: (laughs) yeah yeah they're, they're important questions and we need to be able to ask them definitely yeah, well, that is, that's fun. I guess to kind of wrap up um, my final question then would be um, what advice would you give, uh, particularly undergrads who are maybe just starting an archaeology course or maybe coming to the end of it um, to, um, I guess, how might they go about trying to get some uh, a kind of, concrete experience to kind of determine is this is this what I want to do uh, is this what I want to try to pursue or kind of try to figure out what they want
1: I would definitely and I think it's definitely been a huge move more so than when I started out um, is towards trainee programs mm-hmm. I would look at the trainee programs a lot of the bigger units or um, companies in the UK so like Oxford Archaeology um for example run these training programs i think cots do as well wessex so a lot of the bigger bigger names in archaeology do these training programs and i think they're a good entry level in that you're starting off with uh, not a huge amount of knowledge about the field work side of things but they that's acknowledged on their side and there is a training program alongside having to work so you're kind of supported in a training point of view um, and i think definitely if they had been around when I was starting out I would have gone that route first mm-hmm. because being thrown in at the deep end isn't sometimes always the best way particularly on commercial archaeology when there is deadlines and there is yeah. <laughs> you know sometimes there is there's there's construction people who need to get on site and you are sometimes reminded of that so being a, being in a training program where that's acknowledged and you're able to learn without that kind of pressure 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 go 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 I think would be a really good introduction to it um as a kind of like dipping your toe in the water and seeing also you're getting to learn off really experienced people and I think yeah. as much as you can do archaeology in a classroom you really don't start learning the practicality of recording archaeology until you're on site because it's just all of archaeology is just building up a kind of roll decks in your head of yeah images and experience and I've seen a pit like that before and it was this yeah. or I've dug a feature like that before and the people on site I was working with told me explained to me why it was a Roman ditch or it was a medieval ditch and I think you just you can't really learn that without being out on site um and the other thing again going back to kind of the practicalities of it look out for jobs where there is accommodation and things like that offered don't put yourself under massive financial pressure at the start try and make it a little bit easier on yourself um you know in as much as like we love it and we live and breathe archaeology no one should be kind of like financially struggling either to do it so the easier you can make it I mean if there are perks out there definitely go for the jobs that have the perks you know that you can kind of not be struggling for money at the end of the month which which some archaeologists can be particularly when they start out so yeah yeah. and I'd say probably just kind of have an open attitude to it um some things on paper will look like they're not going to be particularly interesting a project and it could turn out to find the most interesting thing that's ever been found you don't know that's the joy of it (laughs) and vice versa a site can look like it's going to be fantastic and for various different reasons it doesn't turn out to be fantastic so i'd say give every project a chance um uh, give every experience a chance and just take it all just be like a sponge when you start out take in all the experience ask questions speak to the people another good way of learning about progression again is just speaking to people on site speak to your supervisor or the project manager again everyone is pretty approachable and happy to talk about it most of them the vast majority of them have started out as a field archaeologist mm-hmm. and from my experience they've been happy to kind of say how they have got to that part of their career or their because everyone goes really different trajectories yeah so yeah that'd be kind of my advice ask lots of questions both about the job but also about the career and yeah and you know enjoy it as well it's kind of remind yourself that you're getting to do something that a lot of people are sitting in offices wishing yeah yeah (laughs) it reminds me of when we when we worked at Crossrail, we were right in the middle of Liverpool Street, which is the financial district in London. And we had um, a viewing platform that was part of the planning conditions. So people, um, members of the public could come and view the site and look oh, at what cool. we were doing. And we members of the team would go up and speak to them. And we had so many bankers that were probably earning, you know, (laughs) six figure salaries that would come every lunchtime and say, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I got to do this. I hate my office job. This is what I'm going to do when I've, you know, retired or I'm going to go back to college and study archaeology. And again, it kind of gave us a kind of, you know, a little bit of kind of spring in our step that, you know, again, there are problems with it in various different ways. But, you know, it is... We're very fortunate to get yeah. to do it on a day-to-day basis. So,
0: yeah, well, that's that's wonderful to hear. You know, um, it it's really good to hear from someone who's in the field, who's you know has experience with all this and can share this kind of um, almost insider knowledge that we just don't we just don't get in our classes and we wouldn't get until we got thrown into the field. Yes. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this this has been absolutely wonderful um both for me personally i've got all sorts of little notes (laughs) right here Um, and and for and for our members i think they'll really they'll really enjoy this
1: that's great that's great i'm glad and and uh, one final piece of advice is always follow up applications with a phone call because often (laughs) Most archaeology companies, um, certainly the kind of medium, small ones, don't have a HR department or um, anything like that. So often if you send a CV in and you don't hear anything back, it can just be that it's stuck in someone's email um, in their inbox or it's on someone's desk. And that has personally paid off for me and has paid off for a lot of the colleagues that it shows, well, A, it reminds them that you've applied but also it shows a bit of initiative it shows a bit that you really want the job and often it can pay off um because sometimes behind the scenes archaeology companies can be a little bit chaotic so (laughs) just giving them that little push don't assume that there's some big hr department that is like looking at your cv and everything sometimes you need to remind them and that would be my would my one last piece of advice would be to follow up with a phone call
0: (laughs) that is that is very good good advice indeed thank you again thank you so much this has been wonderful
1: you're very welcome you're very welcome
0: you have been listening to have travel will travel a production of the national university of ireland galway archaeology society if you get a moment please like us on facebook and follow us on Instagram and your favorite podcast supplier. Thank you for listening.